Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to X is for Exegesis, and you're right, I'm cheating, but there just aren't hardly any words that start with the letter X, at least not biblical words. So it occurred to me if I stick E on the front, I've got all kinds of good options, and the first one that came to mind, and the one that I settled on quite quickly, is exegesis. You may know that word, you may have heard it, Uh, it may be all brand new to you, that's okay, whatever, we're going to try to work through it. I'm going to start, however, by telling you this episode is going to be a little different. In fact, I was 12 minutes into recording and thought, I don't like this, and I just ditched the whole thing, and I'm starting over a second time. I'm not sure exactly where this is headed. I mean, I've got an outline. I've got notes here. I've got three pages of. I'm not sure how that's going to play out in actuality. You're just going to have to stick with me, and if this ends up with a bit of a rant, if the second half of part two is a bit of a rant, well, uh, either agree with me or forgive me, one of the two. If we're going to talk about exegesis, we should start with some definitions. The first part of that word, ex, is again taken from the Greek word ek, and it means out. Uh, For example, it's where we get our word exit from. The second half of that word, egeomai, is the Greek word to lead. So it is to lead out. Although in context, especially in this case, it means to draw out. And in the case of biblical study, the word is used very rarely, very rarely outside of of biblical study. Um, And inside of biblical study, it means to draw out of the text its meaning. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, which means to, to put into the text what I think it says. When you hear someone in a group Bible study, this verse says to me, boy, red flags and sirens, folks. It, it says one thing, and exegesis tries to find that one thing that it says. Which, which thing is that one thing? It is whatever the author intended, what was in his mind when he wrote this. Now, because as we'll see in a minute, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, it is God who put that in his head to write. So exegesis is finding out what did the author mean to say here, and, and pulling that out and understanding the text in that way. Doing that requires a, a step beforehand, if you will, a preliminary step. And that's another word you may or may not have heard, hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics is the science of interpreting literature. And this word is used both inside and outside of biblical studies. You can go take a course in university at the university on uh, the hermeneutics of literature. It means when you sit down to read a given piece of literature, what, uh, what principles guide your understanding of it? When you and I, at least when I, do biblical study, I start with some presuppositions. I have some hermeneutical, some, uh, hermeneutical presuppositions, that is to say, principles that I begin my work with. One is that the Bible is inspired. It is God's word. It is not Paul's word or Peter's word or Ezra's word. It is God's word. All scripture, Paul says, is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed, and as a result, 
is inerrant. There are some who believe uh, that the Bible is man's writing, nothing more, nothing less. Now, these men were remarkable spiritual giants, but they were doing the writing. I believe God was doing the writing. I believe that the Bible is not entirely supernatural. Now, that may sound like heresy at the beginning, but I'll explain that there are significant portions of the Bible which didn't require revelation from God. For example, Luke, when he wrote his gospel, could go around and talk to Peter and talk to John and talk to others who were there. He was witness to some of the events that he wrote about in the book of Acts. He was there. And so he did not need supernatural revelation from God to write that. There's a combination. Now, some things, for example, the creation story, there weren't anybody there, so it requires supernatural communication. Um, I also believe that the Bible should be understood using a normal hermeneutic, a normal reading. You read it and take it at face value. If it says that uh, there was a great flood and, and God shut Noah up in the ark and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and, 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 then I take that at face value. I use a literal hermeneutic. There are those who use an allegorical hermeneutic. And they'll say that if there was a literal flood, underline the word if, the point of it is not to tell us about a flood. There is a spiritual lesson there. It's almost like a parable. The the Bible is a giant parable. And there is a spiritual lesson behind the physical that is more important. Now, certainly there are types in Scripture. Uh, maybe, Maybe sometime when we go through and we get to letter T, we'll talk about types in Scripture. But the Bible... Uh, for some is read using primarily an allegorical method. Do not try to say this is what it says without digging deeper. If you don't look at the allegorical meaning behind a given text, you're missing the most important part. God, God didn't care whether they ate animals that only chewed the cud and divided the hoof. That was a lesson about what you take into your life and that you have to be discerning about. And that is not just application, that is the interpretation of that text. So, do you use a literal, a normal hermeneutic? No, God meant only eat those critters. Or do you use an allegorical hermeneutic? No, that is an allegory to teach us a spiritual lesson. I go into my exegetical work. When I go to a text to try to discover its meaning, I go into it with these hermeneutical principles at work. It is the word of God. It contains both special revelation and normal knowledge, but all of it inspired, and it should be read using a normal method. It says what it says. Don't go digging for something special. Okay, that's what exegesis is then. Exegesis is drawing out of the text its its intended meaning, and that is whatever the author wanted to say, not what I want him to say. That's Isaac Jesus. I have to get into the mind of Paul or Peter or Amos or Jeremiah and say, what were they trying to say here? That's exegesis. That's pulling out of the text the author's original intended meaning. That is critical to your Christian life. Uh, You may, well, no, I'm going to say, you have been doing exegesis, whether you realize it or not. If you sit down and read the Bible and try to understand what am I supposed to do, you're doing exegesis. And that is so critical because Paul says 
that the Bible is God's modus operandi, or at least his primary MO, for maturing the Christian. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and then he lists the four things, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's primary modus operandi for maturing the Christian to the extent that we're in the word of God and in it correctly and carefully and accurately, we are going to mature into faith. If we are not in the word of God, that is not going to happen. And we are going to remain uh, static in our Christian life. If we're new Christians, we're never going to mature. And if we depart from doing this kind of work, we, we will not progress. In fact, we're likely to regress gravity being what it is, right? There's spiritual gravity too. I need to be in the Word of God. I need to be learning. And you're doing that now by listening to this podcast, right? So so good on you. I'm going to suggest, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We're going to come back to this later on in part two, what, what may end up being a rant. But I'm going to suggest that there are two types of churches now. And by that, I mean um, evangelical churches. They fall into two categories. One is uh, is within the historical um, lineage of what we call the Bible church. Do you remember when there used to be Bible churches? Nobody uses that anymore in their church name. Uh, th- we have designer names now, and, and as Pam and I have been looking for a church, it's interesting to see what kind of a name they choose, and some of them are totally incongruous. They, d- they really say nothing, but they're what I call designer names. They're intriguing they're user-friendly, they're kind of catchy, or whatever. Remember when there used to be Bible churches that said, hey, we're about the Bible here. We're going to study and learn the Word of God because we believe it is God's... Now, obviously, you didn't write all that out, but that's what you were saying when you put the word Bible in your name. The church I pastored here uh, back in the day was called Pathway Bible Church. And and maybe I, I kind of uh, put us behind the eight ball a little bit, when we chose a name, we had a, a contest. We only we started with four couples and their preschool children, and we had a little bit of a contest to choose a church name, and everybody could submit. I don't know if they had to only submit one or more than one, and I remember who won it, never mind. And the prize, I think, was a donut. We went all out here. We had a big budget, so there was a, the, the winner got a budget, and we settled on Pathway Bible Church. It worked well. We had a, a, what I think was a pretty good graphic, a, a logo, and, the, and I insisted that the middle name be Bible Church because I wanted to make that statement. Well, that was early in the designer name uh, movement, and, and I may have hampered our growth. But I did think it was important that we tell people, if you come here, you're going to discover that we're going to be in the Bible. And what that means is, though we obviously didn't say this, we're going to be doing exegesis. When we go into the Bible, our goal, listen to this, our goal is to learn what the Bible says. In this particular passage, what does it say? Singular. What was the author's intent here? That uh, becomes then expositional preaching. That's what, uh, that's what uh, expositional preaching is. It is finding the meaning of the text and drawing it out. Lots of churches now brag about, boast about the fact, we do expositional preaching here. And they often add the tag, that's verse by verse, preaching through. I'm sorry, but as an old homiletics prof, they are not preaching. 
and it's not expositional, and that is not what exegesis is. What they're doing is all wrong, and that's why I wanted to talk about exegesis with you, so that you would know what exegesis is and where it leads. Okay, now we know what the word means, and we know why it's important. Um, understanding, being in the Word of God, understanding what it says. We understand why it's important. Now let's talk about the process, about how we do exegesis. And like like uh, many things in life, there are levels here. I don't know, have I mentioned that about uh, two months ago, I got a part-time job as a greenskeeper on one of the uh, local golf courses here. The community we live in has seven golf courses, and I am part of the uh, 10-man greenskeeper crew at Pebblebrook Golf Course. That puts me around golfers all the time. In fact, on our crew, we've got one guy that is in his late 40s and hopes to qualify for the senior tour. And it sounds like he's going to make it. He's really good. And it's fascinating for me because I'm basically a hack. I play the game and enjoy it, but but my goal is is double digits. And his goal is par or below. So we're in entirely different worlds, and it's fascinating to talk to him about the things that he pays attention to. He puts right spin or left spin on his ball on purpose. I put right or left because my swing is a hot mess, and I have no control over it. It's just fascinating to talk to him. There are people who, uh, like uh, I typically, I've only played like I think three, maybe four times since we moved here, and I just get paired up with whoever. Here's a threesome. We'll stick you in with them. Sometimes they're like me. They're just out there doing recreational golf. Some of them are incredibly serious and focused. They play golf seven days a week and have thousands and thousands of dollars invested in equipment. And the parallel here is exegesis. You can do this uh, at, at, a, at a more casual level, or you can get downright, you can drill down to the bottom. You can become an academic in this kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about the methodology for doing exegesis, and, and then I guess in the end, you'll decide how much you are going to do it, right? If you open your Bible and read it with any kind of Uh, attention to what this says to me. You are doing exegesis. You may be doing it badly. You may be doing it very casually, but you are doing exegesis. You are an exegete. However, there are guys who who are putting right hand or left hand spin on this or drawing it back. You understand what I mean? Okay, so let's talk about how we do it. Again, the goal is to discover the author's intended meaning. I don't think I can say that too often because too many people are ignorant of that uh, and, and their goal is something else. Nope. Our goal is to find out what did Luke have in mind when he wrote these words. That's what we want to get to. Anything else is eisegesis. There can be no, this verse says to me. This then, this process requires some diligent work. And I'm going to throw some things at you that I think are necessary if we're going to do true exegesis. And you'll see what your problem may be as we uh, move along. The first is that I have to know something about the author. Who is this guy? And what is, is, um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw another term at, but I think this is kind of cool. It's German. It's kind of cool. Sitzenleben. And, that, and that's not S-I-T-S, it's S-I-T-Z, sits im 
Laban, and it means his situation in life. When he wrote this, who was he and where was he and what was his situation as he wrote this? Um, if, if I get a letter from my uh, older brother, who right now is, is struggling with some, some physical issues, and uh, we're praying that these are going to go well. Uh, HIPAA laws being what they are, I, I won't say more than that, but potentially uh, serious physical issues. As I, if, if I were, he's not going to, but if I were to get a letter from him, I do get emails from him, and he talks about that. Uh, I take that into account. When I read what he's writing, I, I take into account that he's struggling with these things, as anybody would. Um, decisions that have to be made and all those things. That is his current Sitzenleben. We pray that a year from now it won't be. That uh, that what's done for him by the medical profession will be entirely successful. His Sitzenleben will change. What is the author's Sitzenleben? I'll give you an example. Paul wrote the book of Philippians from jail. Uh, he, he had been in jail for quite some time, the better part of two years under uh, confinement in one way or another, and was just about to go to trial. This trial did not weigh particularly heavy on his mind because he was, he tells the Philippians, confident that he was going to be released. However, if you read the book of Philippians and know that Paul is writing it from prison, you'll understand the book differently you will understand that some of the things that he writes, if we're going to do exegesis and get down to the one meaning, we're going to have to understand that his Sitzenleben was he was in jail uh, for the faith. Ezekiel wrote from Babylon. He had been taken captive to Babylon and was writing back to the Jews who still lived in Jerusalem. What he writes then uh, has to be read in light of the fact that he's an exile in Babylon and writing to people still in Jerusalem. Amos was a shepherd. He, was, he, he had no Bible college or seminary training. He says to us, he was a shepherd from Tekoa, a little tiny village uh, in Judah, and, and also tended fig trees. He did some work on the side as a gardener. Luke was a physician, and when you read his gospel, and keep in mind his sits in Laban, he is a physician, you will say, oh, that's interesting that he says that. For example, do you remember the, the woman that had what the King James calls the issue of blood? She hemorrhaged blood. Only Luke says she had gone to many, many doctors without any relief. That's a physician writing that. Timothy was a young pastor who needed instruction on how to do the work of the ministry. So understand something about the author. No, I said, Timothy, that should go in number two. The readers and their sits in Laban. For example, the Thessalonian Christians were immature in the faith because Paul was only there for, we think, maybe three or four weeks max, and he didn't have time to even give them the basics of the Christian life. Plus, they were going through some terrible suffering. Some of them had already been martyred. Understanding the readers sits in Laban. What was their situation? Philemon, if you know anything about the one-chapter book of Philemon, you got to know he was a rich guy who owned slaves, and he hosted the church in his house. That was his sits in Laban. And what Paul writes to him has to be understood in light of those. The Corinthians, the city of Corinth, we'll talk about this in a minute. The city of Corinth was horrible. What a mess that place was. Think 
Uh, I grew up in Seattle. Seattle is a moral cesspool, or San Francisco, or New York, port cities. Uh, Corinth was a port city, and it was a moral mess. The church was a moral mess. There was all kinds of bad stuff going on there. Understand the readers and their situation. That will help you understand what is being written to them. You also have to broaden that out and take into account specific cultural factors. Philippi was a unique city. The residents of Philippi, by virtue of being residents of Philippi, were granted Roman citizenship. The, uh, the residents of Corinth, the residents of Ephesus, the residents of Berea, they were not Roman citizens. They lived in the Roman Empire, but they were not citizens. The citizens of uh, the residents of Philippi were, for reasons we don't go into now, granted Roman citizenship. That meant some very special things. It meant, for example, that they could vote and elect their own local leaders. It meant that they had certain tax advantages and so forth. So when you read Paul in Philippians say, we are citizens of heaven, that resonated with them in ways that you and I can just fly right by unless we understand the cultural setting of the book of Philippians. <clears throat> Paul was in jail, as we said. He writes to people, the residents of Philippi were proud of their, of their Roman citizenship. Very few cities in the Roman Empire uh, were filled with citizens. They were one of them. But when Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, <clears throat> he is discounting their Roman citizenship and saying, wait a minute, that's not what counts. You see how you see how doing this background work, we call this biblical theology, doing this background work helps us draw out the meaning of the text. Okay, but wait, there's more. Knowing the language in which it's written, uh, in the New Testament Greek, in the Old Testament Hebrew, and knowing that language's idioms, and key words, and I've mentioned before here that I've spent the last three plus years studying Portuguese, and I am almost every week I come across something and I can't make any sense out of it because, because boy, do they have a lot of idioms. And they use uh, words in ways that I think, why in the world is that word used in this expression? It doesn't fit there at all, but it is a common expression. There are those all through the Old Testament and New Testament. All languages have them. We have them in English. We say, oh, that's touching. And you and I know what that means because, in part, the tone of voice. But, but when seen in text and read by someone from a different culture, with different... So, understanding Greek and Hebrew, knowing the meaning of some Greek words, doulos, which normally gets translated slave, but... It was sometimes used of a bond slave. Do you know what a bond slave is? So it may mean someone who is owned. It may be someone who is voluntarily a slave. Hagios, the word that is normally translated holy or, or sanctified, another a cognate of that word. What does the word hagios mean? Dikaiosune, which means righteous, righteousness. These words have special, powerful meanings in their original language. And if I'm going to draw out the author's meaning when he wrote that sentence or that paragraph, I'm going to have to be able to do some of this. Now, there are words that are, you know, words like and and the and 
uh, walk, except even walk, peripateo, is, is kind of an interesting word. Uh, so I'm going to, in order to get his, his uh, intended meaning, what he was trying to say, I'm going to have to know the original language and what words he used and if they have any special meaning. Hey, as, as you can probably anticipate, that is a huge uh, undertaking. There's a lot of work to be done here. Uh, to my right and to my left, my bookshelves along the wall on either side of where this microphone is, filled with books that help me do that, that go back and say, this is how. So these are some of the prerequisites to doing exegesis. Okay, listen, we've used up a little actually more than our allotted time for part one. I got to stop right, right now and go on to part two. Please, please, please come join me.